few words of housekeeping. Um, we are live uh, streaming this and we are recording for um, CPP dissemination purposes so you can watch yourselves back again should you wish or send to your friends. Um, we are tweeting hashtag CPP level up at Centre Pro Poll um, and uh, we're wrapping up at uh, quarter past three with opportunities for you to um, put your questions in the Q&A function um, on the bar below. So um, with that, I hand over to Heather to start the discussion. Thank you, Charlotte. And hello, everybody. Thank you very much for, uh, for giving up part of your day to, uh, to stare, stare at the screen again, because uh, there's quite a lot of that going on from wherever you are. Um, I'd like to start by initially what I'm going to do is, um, is just introduce our key speakers. Um, and then we're going to switch to a poll to ask you, you guys a question. And then we'll, um, we'll ask each of our speakers in turn to say a few words uh, before opening up the debate a little bit further. Um, so to start off with, let me just introduce Mark Gregory, who is incoming director of the Centre for Towns. So um, I'm sure we will have, uh, you'll have lots to say about the, uh, the future um, of where we're going uh, that, with that. Uh, Dominic Campbell, who's Chief Executive of FutureGov, um, and Francesca Gaines, who is Professor of Public Policy at the University of Manchester. Welcome to all of our speakers. Um, before we get started, um, just a quick word to all of you guys. Um, hopefully we will be able to bring up our poll uh, that we wanted to ask you, which is um, you, the last decade's been um, sort of over overshadowed by austerity. Uh, what should Chancellor Rishi Sunak be focusing on now uh, to, uh, to boost the levelling up agenda in the long term? So um, hopefully we will, get, um, we will get the poll up and it's doesn't. Oh, there we go, magic. Um, so there, there's the question. If, if you choose one, which of the following would be, the, should the current Chancellor focus on if the government is serious about levelling up in the long term, uh, devolution, uh, a federal, federalist UK, um, public sector reform and social infrastructure investment, physical infrastructure investment, or innovation with green economy, tech and R&D. Um, so if you could all answer that, I would be uh, truly grateful. Um, so we are going to uh, start, um, as you're thinking about that, I'd just like to introduce our first guest again, uh, Mark Gregory, who is going to talk to us, I'm, I'm, I'm hoping, on uh, the future economy in um, the Thames. Mark. Uh, thank you, and uh, good afternoon, everyone. So yes, I have... Um, two jobs. I um, both work with the Centre for Towns and I'm the uh, Chief Economist of EY or Ernst & Young as, as it used to be called. Um, but uh, treat me today as being from the Centre for Towns um, I, probably means I can be uh, slightly more open in uh, what I say. So um, you know the levelling up debate and I think Centre for Towns we think that um, we were kind of talking about that for about three years before uh, everyone else joined in. But it, but it isn't new, and I think that is important in this debate. You know, if um, Martin Jones, who's a professor at um, Staffs University, 
did a recent paper and he talked about um, 40 initiatives to rebalance the UK economy geographically in the last 40 years, roughly. And uh, the main feature they had in common was they failed. So, you know, this isn't kind of uh, a new thing. It's also not an easy thing. And um, you know, I wasn't particularly uh, encouraged when um, Sebastian Payne in the Financial Times wrote that um, we shouldn't worry about levelling up post uh, the Cummings era because Allegra Stratton did a few really good clips on the news about social policy around the UK. So now it's clearly, you know, I suggest a bit harder than that, but uh, at least we know where we are. Why it's hard is, particularly if we think of it from a town's perspective, there isn't one set of issues or one type of towns. And at the centre of the towns, you know, we've looked at and developed various indices. So if we look at economic well-being um, or, and social welfare and biosocial welfare, health, um, uh, treatment of disability, educational provision, the ex-industrial and the coastal towns tend to perform worst across the UK by, by some margin. You know, core cities tend to be at the best place, even though there, is, there are areas of deprivation within cities. If we look at social isolation, though, the connectedness of a, a town or a place to um, uh, the rest of the economy and society, connect, um, the, how far you have to go to a GP surgery or a hospital, quality of broadband, uh, transport connectivity. Actually, we see market towns performing reasonably poorly there and uh, the coastal towns second. So, so we see those issues different for different places. COVID has further, if you like, muddied the waters in the sense we've seen probably COVID's main hit in coastal towns. Um, we did some work and uh, during the first lockdown, 56% of jobs in Newquay were locked down and 55% in Skegness, which, which I think is also interesting because there's two places from geographically totally different parts of the UK, but, but impacted there. Whereas manufacturing places have generally done a little bit better under COVID, but now they're under threat from Brexit. You know, if we do have um, more friction in customs, that will affect our manufacturing sector. The problem then, so I think, is, is a complex one. And you know, if, we, if we're looking towards what we'd have liked to see in the spending review or, or what we might see policy-wise, you know, I, I think one of the challenges is a lot of the levelling up debate is about economic issues um, and really isn't talking about social infrastructure. You know, so we see possibly in smaller places we might get some money for the high streets fund or, or for green spaces or the arts but the two aren't really joined and i suppose you know one question is if you are going to drive economic performance will that feed through into more money for the social infrastructure and, and where i think it's really needed in towns is um in health towns are getting older the center for towns published some work on that but i, I think in the last 40 years 75% of the growth in the population over 45 in the UK has been in towns and 80% of the growth in the population of under 45 has been in cities. So towns are getting older and that has all sorts of demands on healthcare, on the types of transport provision, but it also means we have to think of ways for retaining or making towns attractive for young people as well, which is where I think again transport links, green spaces, cultural provision, all become important there and then as, as those young people have families quality of schools and, and you know and what I would have liked to seen in the spending review we're not happening is um, not that you level up provision in towns but actually you go more than level up because I think if you're going to reverse what is at least 30 or 40 years of, of, of 
kind of disadvantage treatment in the economic system, you need to spend more per head on education in towns than you do in cities, um, notwithstanding some of the challenges in parts of cities. So I think we were looking for something more radical uh, that's not happening. I think the other part of it is that um, the, and other people, uh, Francesca and others can talk about this in, with more knowledge than me, but um, you know, the, the, we need to change the way economic policy is made. Um, so today we're seeing very much climate change. We've been told what's going to happen and all these jobs will be going to places. But those places are not involved in making that policy. So I think if you really want to level up, we think you have to start bottom up. So you actually look at what the problems are in a local area, but what the opportunities are, what's the skill set, what are the capabilities, how can we actually aggregate from the bottom up to understand what we need? And my view is if you did that, you'd get, for example, a very different industrial strategy in terms of where your priorities are. You would, you'd be reflecting the fact that there's strong food processing in Wigan, for example, or that you know, we have pockets of pharmaceutical expertise in, in sort of Yorkshire, that maybe don't feature in, in the national picture. So for me, it is a flip very much in terms of how we make policy, not just that we, we need to allocate more funding, which we do, but I am worried that um, economic infrastructure will pick up um, all of the burden and will probably fail to deliver unless we have a clear link between how economic spend generates better social infrastructure as well and i think as we if we keep cutting or don't increase local authority provision then you're not going to square that that circle last thing is um i do have uh, unusually for me um a, a slight hint of, uh, of optimism and, and that's really because i think covid or the lockdown has shown us we can do things differently and actually the world doesn't just collapse when we try and change and why I, I suppose I'm optimistic is a lot of the things that we're seeing in the population. So people um, more interested in their health, more aware of their local communities, valuing their time spent with their families, recognizing the benefits to the environment that actually not commuting and, and, and traveling less has. Not, not only the population seeing that, but actually we're seeing businesses talk about that. And, and I think that's really important because rarely do you get a, a, that kind of um coincidence of views that to me makes me think we do have a chance you know businesses are more aware of sustainability of the environment they are now i think aware of the costs as well as the benefits of globalization that, that we haven't seen so, so i think there's a chance to reframe policy differently and also think about how businesses can play a part in the social infrastructure and life of places so if you take Ernst young which is a national business has offices in 17 cities, but most of our workforce, I know because I've, I've looked at it, live in towns. They don't actually live in cities. And so one of our ideas um, was that um, people are feeling, working all, turning all the time, as Heather says on Zoom and Teams, um, cut off from community, but saving some time every day when they're not commuting. And one of the ideas we have is giving them that time back to go and do something locally. So go and go and speak in a school, go and mentor a local business, go and, and spend some time with a charity. So for me, I suppose it's a whole system change if we're gonna level up. It isn't about spending a bit more on trains or on um, roads. It's actually all forms of infrastructure, but it's also about doing things differently across all of society. So I'll stop there and uh, before my optimism disappears and uh, you know, I change the mood. That's great, thank you, Mark. 
Um, I know from the local authority uh, leaders and chief execs I speak to, uh, the, the, the smaller market towns are where they're really excited about the, the benefits of COVID and people not commuting. So, so really interesting and exciting time for all of them. Um, I am next going to uh, turn to Francesca. So uh, Francesca Gaines, direct, uh, sorry, Professor of Public Policy at the University of Manchester. Um, hello, Francesca. Hello, and um, I hope that I'm going to um, continue Mark's note of optimism about some of the opportunities through all of this. Um, and I don't want to be too retrospective, but I think my brief was to, to, to open up the discussion about the state of devolution and how the centre of government works with localities and, and what are the possibilities for political management to support levelling up. So I don't want to be too retrospective, but I'll just begin by the context really, which is only a few short months ago, you know, further English devolution seemed to be gathering at a pace with new deals and a PM who had been a mayor and who had this political imperative to address levelling up and a series of enabling processes to support place-based uh, political management a fair funding review, um, a shared prosperity fund coming online, a review of adult social care, a, a framework, a white paper. So it was very possible to be critical uh, of that. It was still top down and it still didn't really give local government enough powers or enough um, fiscal flexibility. Um, but the direction of travel was at least tilting towards giving budgets and decision-making to um, place-based political leaders to address regional inequalities. Then of course, the pandemic has revealed the devastating and deadly um, consequence of inequalities on health and mortality, and it's exposed the inadequacies of the social care system and the weaknesses of city regional um, economies and over-reliance on retail and hospitality and tourism, for example. And of course, fiscally, the extent of treasury borrowing is eye-watering. 350 billion was the last count I saw, and it's going to get more next week. And the cost to local government in sustaining their communities, which they did utterly magnificently, I think, um, and the loss of revenues to them is huge and grave. So in the, in the face of all of this, I spy one kind of expected consequence for, for the Devo agenda and two unexpected consequences. So I think the expected consequence is that the centralizing tendency of the British state kicked in big time and the center of government didn't seem to have the trust in local government to take advantage of their expertise, for example, around track and trace or how to compensate sectors and businesses. And of course, that was most clearly expressed in the standoff between the Prime Minister and Andy Burnham. And it, it does seem in the face of 350 billion inconceivable that 5 million could lead to such, such a breakdown, really. Ironically, though, and, and in a good way, I think that that exercise of mayoral power really has had the impact of changing public discourse around um, 
elected political leadership. So ironically, whereas at the start of the Devo experiment in Greater Manchester, it was said that, you know, this was a top-down process against the wishes of the public. Um, now the latest polling shows the public's much more favorable to the idea of a strong elected official um, standing up for, for a place to the treasury. And maybe that will change the balance of how areas that are uncertain about the idea of elected leadership in how they, they, they weigh up that, that equation. And I think the second unexpected twist in the Devo agenda is, is as Mark alluded to, a, sl a slight change in fortunes of the relative um, fates of, of the economic fortunes of city centres versus towns and high streets. Although I, I don't think you should ever see city centres versus towns and high streets. But, you know, whereas there is real questioning about the future of cities and how they can respond to long-term changes in working and commuting and shopping and socialising. Um, conversely, yes, I picked up um, a sense of optimism in some town centres who were thriving from localised shopping and socialising and even staycationing. So there are do seem to be opportunities opening up there. So I'm coming to the close of what I wanted to say now, but what might help over the next year to get in the face of, the, of this, to get devolution and place-based leadership back on track. And especially as Charlotte said, we, we have this one year spending review, um, which seems to be already um, directed at certain, certain initiatives, but does that give us the space over the year to start a dialogue to help build the trust and get things back on track. Because what, what I really, really want to argue is that we can't have quick, quick win solutions chucked at this, that you need um, longer term solutions that recognize that leveling up requires win-win scenarios because the pandemic has only exacerbated these long-standing regional imbalances which the government can't help to solve without more devolution because central government simply can't deliver on the ground whereas local government and mayoral authorities can they, they've got the networks with local businesses and anchor institutions they understand the skills gaps they see the opportunities for investment in sectors to grow like advanced manufacturing and green growth digital they can see opportunities for tourism, support local retailers. You know, so central government needs place-based political leadership. And I think local government needs central government to underwrite their finances at the moment in order to be able to deliver that. So practically, what might help if we've got a year, what might help to get a conversation back on track? And here's just a, my wish list, right? One, strong support from the Prime Minister and the Cabinet Office coordinating departments because it's become very siloed again and very centralised. It needs some drive from the centre. We need the Devo white paper and a grown-up conversation about how to support place-based leadership. Single pot budgets. Um, support for regional civil servants 
to provide a link between the centre and localities and mechanisms to draw in elected mayors who do will represent 21 million um, citizens after the elections in May. And above all else, transparency, because I don't think quick fixes, uh, you know, perhaps directed to red wall, uh, small red wall constituencies uh, will solve the levelling up problem. There really needs to be a recognition of the dependency between central government and localities and that, you know, not addressing that in a long term sustainable way um, just won't even begin to tackle the consequences of the pandemic and uh, Brexit forthcoming. Great, thank you so much for that, Francesca. Um, some great things to think about there. I think um, interesting that um, that Boris Johnson's first um, comments on devolution after the refresh were were quite negative. I think. Um, for me, it, it, it sort of said, I can understand his sentiments about breaking up the union, but um, at the same time, it was sort of, um, I've let the genie out the bottle and it's not quite what I wanted um, to happen, uh, which sort of goes against what devolution's all about. Um, but enough of that. Um, let's get on to our next speaker, uh, Dominic Campbell, who is Chief Executive of FutureGov. Uh, Dominic, tell us about the future. Uh no pressure. Um, hi, everyone. Thanks for having me. Uh, quite quite hard to know what to cover after the last um, speakers, really, who are far more expert in their framing of this uh, policy agenda than me, I would say. I probably here as partly as a sort of from a practitioner perspective in some ways and someone who hangs out with local authorities and others um, every every day of my life across the country. Uh, holding my Middlesbrough mug, uh, and also uh, stood in Hackney as I as I talked to you. Um, so quite a diverse perspective on the on the agenda, I guess. I think um, just to say as well that <clears throat> one of my my credits for being on this call really is that we're one of the delivery partners um, to MHCLG in the Towns Fund currently, uh, alongside Arup and others. So we're supporting 101 towns around the country to look ahead to their futures, supported by um, upcoming central government investment for various uh, locally determined initiatives, which I'll come back to in a, in a minute. I think the interesting thing from my perspective, so my background, whilst, whilst you'll see on my bio, I read as a digital and design douchebag. Actually, my background is an economic geographer. Um, and so I kind of go back to that and have spent more recent times in the public sector and, and since as an entrepreneur. And bringing all of those together is, is quite interesting in this context when I'm not really certain that, I think there's a, there's a large tension that we're facing right now between sort of the true economic geography of Britain now and in the future and the reality that we've been hardwired to for centuries and the political economy side of it, which is very different, which, which currently feels slightly more like a, a wish and an aspiration rather than one that necessarily strategically recognizes the basis of our economy and the way that the way that it's put together on a national regional and local level um, and in order to untangle all of that legacy um, you know I almost view place in the economy much like you know the sort of work that we do in organization design like every every place every every corner of the country has its own 
legacy culture, legacy, um, you know, community approach, politics, financial situation, public sector institutions. And that sort of richness is what makes the country interesting, the economy vibrant and diverse, but equally uh, pushes us towards the regionalization that we're going for, surely, inevitably. Or it would do, at least, as I say, if you came at it from a economic geography perspective rather than a sort of political uh, directive. Um, and I do think that there is this risk ahead of us that uh, whilst I'm, you know, as somebody who wrote my university thesis on directly elected mayors 20 years ago, uh, I'm excited to see them arrive uh, at last in quite some fashion, uh, being able to nerd out watching their press conferences on Saturday afternoon TV, like something I never believed would happen. Uh, as you say, the equal and opposite reaction of that to our, from our prime minister this week um, maybe maybe leaves us in a bit of limbo around sort of vehement agreement that it is a good thing, especially as a former mayor of London, but then wondering whether it's necessarily something that they should wish for at a national level, uh, given given the response that they've seen since. I think I think there's there's a real question in all of that around what are we leveling up. I think obviously it's been geographically determined up until this point, um, but. Uh, you know, not viewing the economy as a system and actually trying to target it in that sort of piecemeal way, um, whether it's through funding or governance or sort of um, political positioning, uh, feels like it isn't necessarily a strategic play at the moment that any of us can necessarily feel convinced is adding up to um, a national response to the, the future economy that we're striving towards, particularly if our ambition right now, post-COVID, post-Brexit, is for us to aspire to be a truly bold global economy would would necessarily sort of um, the sort of leveling up agenda does that come into conflict with that agenda does it you know given that we are the global finance center of the world is that a, is that a good time to necessarily be feeling like you're taking on the major cities that are the foundation of our of our economy um, and how can we actually balance all of these interests I think is is the main challenge in front of us, the abject poverty in parts of our cities that outstrips um, those areas that we're necessarily talking about in other parts of the country, potentially. Um, and so obviously, you know, taking a more national perspective uh, and devolution perspective is something that I'm really, I'm really interested in, rather than seeing these things as binary and reinforcing all our old tribalisms of the north-south divide um, in that respect. I think obviously we're about to see a massive transition of public sector organizations, places, the economy as a whole for all of these pressures. And for me, the thing that I think worries me the most, both in capacity within regional government, in private sector organizations looking to deliver regeneration and change, um, but also in our communities around the skills base, is are we, are we set up for this transition? Do we have the capacity and capabilities that we need in order to do place shaping, um, to really grasp the opportunity of devolution. Um, and equally, do our communities have the support that they need um, in order to reskill and move forward? And for me, my, my biggest fear in all of this is that we're underbaking our response, but overbaking our aspirations, uh, and we risk falling in a gap directly between the two. If we look at where the successful places are coming through COVID, they're places that have had really strong local relationships, uh, tight public sector integration, a place perspective, a real understanding of place. 
so that they can look backwards to look forward and take a really um, sort of historic perspective on what made them strong, what made them meaningful places in the first place. How do we double down on that and, and create a sort of neo-town revolution that's based around those strengths rather than the risk of us jumping to sort of faddish digital economy tropes or whatever else in order that you know you sort of tick some policy boxes or sound cool on a political basis but actually this could just be some really boring fundamental brilliant economic re-engineering that's needed in these places that that we can focus on supported by the public sector i think just to finish on a few points um for me i I look back on the policy and I think is this a time for us to look back at things like total place um, where where we truly put all of our resources on the table and took a relatively modest perspective uh, and said this is everything we've got what how, how best do we do something with it uh, I feel like through austerity and other and other things we've we've sort of lost that to some degree because you know, inevitably, as you become tighter in and of your own organisations, it's harder for you to be generous and outward facing in that side of things. Um, I wonder how we generate an entrepreneurial approach, both within the public sector, but within our economies. I feel this fervent appetite flowing through my inbox often of people who have either lost their jobs or seeking to move jobs through this process of reflection and transition, wanting to be sort of entrepreneurs with public purpose. And how do we actually unleash that in a way that is... Uh, meaningful and at a scale that can support the economy across the country. Um, and then how do, how do towns, interestingly, when I'm looking at some of the towns fund stuff, I think nobody's necessarily yet pivoted boldly away from the plans they had in January to the ones they might have now. It's often very much town centre developments, uh, roundabouts and car parks, rather than necessarily um, like how might we put posters on the tube to attract uh, wobbly Londoners uh, out from uh, the city, out to our town as a place of amazing um, quality of life and opportunity in the future? And how do we unleash that kind of imagination and energy into places outside of our cities that, that gives them the confidence to draw that in? But again, drawing in the skills, focused on a, 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 a serious conversation around what might our diverse specialization of our economy be in regions around the country, in towns around the country? And how do we do it in a, a sort of orchestrated way that doesn't lead to a zero sum game of competitiveness uh, and trying and everybody aiming for the same sort of um, vanilla uh, version of a future which doesn't necessarily benefit anybody. Um, so that's just some thoughts to prompt some conversation. Okay, um, thank you very much, Dom. I think um, anyone who mentions Total Place in their presentation is uh, gets extra bonus points by yeah, by my standards. But frankly, no, I think we're uh, we're we're probably on uh, one public service rather than uh, Total Place. I think uh, wrong political colour. Um, we are going to move over to some questions and bring uh, invite some people to come on uh, with their own questions in a moment. I just wanted to, um, I'm hoping that someone's going to bring up the poll results from uh, from the, the poll that we did so we can have a look back at that. There we go. Um, okay, so let's have a look. Uh, all public service reform and social infrastructure investment seems to be winning uh, there, uh, closely followed by um, 
devolved power to mayoral combined authorities and innovate, uh, green innovation. Um, let's not tell Boris Johnson that his um, green innovation wasn't uh, isn't quite as popular. Um, not many people going for rather physical uh, infrastructure investment or um, create. I don't think there's uh, there's um, much money left for physical infrastructure investment actually. Um, or creating a uh, a more federal UK. Um, right, thank you um, very much uh, to all of you for that. I think we're going to, if we get time, we're going to uh, pull that up again at the end and see if you still feel the same. Although someone will have to remind me what, what was winning. Right, um, okay, I will, um, I'd just like to um, move on to some questions. We've got, we've got a couple of people who are going to come in and ask questions. I'm going to, um, and, and make the wrong comments, I'm going to go next to uh, Louis Cuffet, who is Senior Policy Advisor for the Open Innovation Unit at HMG. Um, is uh, Louis around and can we bring him up? Hopefully, perhaps not. Um, I will write, okay, I shall go then. Um, perhaps we have um, Andy Hollingsworth with us, who is Principal Strategy, uh, Principal of Strategy and um, Policy at Greater Manchester Combined Authority. We do, yes. Hi. Um, oh. <laughs> so I, I suppose one of the things it strikes me about a lot of this conversation is it, it's still a lot of it was about sort of what we need to see from central government to get to get place-based policy making going um so i wanted to approach it from a different point of view um, and ask what you might hope to see in local authority and mayoral manifestos um in the elections next year and i'm aware it's quite a general question it will depend on the place but yeah what, what would you what would you like to see Okay, Andy is very clearly there trying to get you guys all to do his um, his policy work for uh, for the next election. Um, I am an apolitical and... officer. I am definitely not. <laughs> okay, sorry, sorry, Andy. Let's uh, let's start with um, let's start with you, Francesca. What what would you answer to to that? Am I done? Am I unmuted? You are. Um, well, uh, speaking, I'm going to put a gender hat on here because it's a good opportunity. So I would really like to see, not, not just in Greater Manchester, but across the country, I would like to see a recognition of some of the gendered effects of the changes that's happening in in occupations at the moment and how many of the jobs that are really at risk are jobs in that, that where women uh, are overrepresented retail hospitality etc and many of the new green jobs the fantastical single dancing digital green you know and construction are sectors where men are overrepresented. So I would like to see some real explicit recognition of the fact that, you know, to tackle inequalities, you need to understand, who, you know, how it's playing out in different sectors and that you might wish to target skills training in certain directions. I, I know Greater Manchester is doing this, but 
that that would be one wish list for me personally but it also in general what i'd like to see is just hope is just some hope that people are connected to their place and they can see things getting better and i think that um that that's what you'd want to see from your place-based political leaders really Okay, um, Charlotte, do you want to come in on this as well? Um, I think we were, um, we were mentioning um, earlier about how, um, what an extraordinary moment it was uh, with um, Andy Burnham and some of the, the, the mayors. What would, you, what would you answer for, for Andy? I would say the work that we've done at CPP shows that healthy life expectancy is basically the ultimate proxy indicator for how inclusive a, a local economy is. Um, the interplay between economics, economic opportunity, economic outcomes and health. We've got Michael from NHS Confed who can talk, talk, to, talk to specifics, but it, it's well known now. And, and, our, and our work shows, I think that if leaders focus on that, I think they will be doing the integration, that holistic whole system, one public service, total place, call it what you will, approach because they because so many different aspects of our physical and social infrastructure and our economic mechanism, be that local or national, will have to come into play. So that's what I'd be encouraging them to focus on. And you know. Andy Burnham's done great things for Greater Manchester, but it still has some of the lowest levels of higher uh, of healthy life expectancy in the country. And so that says to me, that's where I'd be digging deeper. Okay. Thank you, Charlotte. I'm gonna go over now to Michael Wood, who's head of health economic partnerships at NHS Confederation. Um, who presumably uh, knows a fair amount as well about uh, working across um, across public services. Uh, Michael, are you are you with us? I, I am. I am. Thanks, Heather. And that point from Charlotte really well made. I suppose I've got a reflection on my own sector, and then a question for the panel about that. And, and if I think about, for example, NHS engagement in exercises like the spending review, then traditionally, of course, it's national. It's it's pretty adversarial. It's based on what, activity, capital. You know, th this is about us getting the money, which it does, but this, it doesn't talk to public services as an investment, doesn't talk to health as an investment, doesn't talk to that system change that Mark mentioned. So there's something about our behaviours then. Now, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not expecting the panel to change the behaviours of the national NHS in, you know, in, in a 20-minute conversation. But I suppose in that green shoot, it's about what's happening locally, isn't it? So, so how can we bring health leaders into those conversations locally about the prosperity and health and wealth of their place, which helps in terms of championing a place and what that place wants and, and moving it away from simply a national NHS perspective. And I think COVID has kicked off a different way of thinking from within the NHS about its role in the economy and from economic leaders about the role of health in the economy. So I suppose that the point in the question there is, how can we, what do we need to do in the coming months to make sure that these relationships are for life, not just for COVID?
There we go. I'm off mute now. Excellent question there. Thank you. Um, I'm just going to uh, kick in as well with a bit of an observation before we, uh, we move on to uh, getting the panel to answer that. I've noticed that during COVID there was some emergency funding given to health, which is block funding rather than uh, payment by results, which is the, the way that health's normally funded, which I think is an, and, and they're now consulting on moving forward um, of doing much more block funding, which is an extraordinary thing for the health service that they presumably will start um, not being paid for treating people, which for me is, a, is exactly the right step forward that we're actually um, encourages prevention rather than um, rather than just treatment um, after the event and also it, it sort of brings it much more in step with local government. Uh, Dom as you mentioned total place I think we should bring you in onto that one about uh, bringing health leaders into different ways of working uh, across uh, public services. I'm glad you came to me because we've also been doing some work over the last year or two in northeast Lincolnshire where they've um, created a thing called the union which brings together the council and the CCG there. Um, so I've been ahead of the game structurally and culturally around how to how to bring those two worlds together. I don't think they would mind me saying that it's not straightforward. Um, you know, as as local locally minded as you try and be as a health leader, the inevitability is the gravitational pull to uh, Whitehall or Victoria Street or Elephant or wherever wherever HQ is these days, um, and and so it does create real distortions in power dynamics um, where you recognise you're part of a local health system but aren't necessarily allowed to behave as part of one because of your financial constraints, the way that it's allocated. Although I did I did notice that guys in St Thomas recently contributed a quarter of a million pounds to. Southwark and Lambeth to block off streets um, because they they viewed it as a strong preventative health measure, um, which which I think is a great start. I also think that at this moment, which is quite COVID specific, but generally because of the strength of the NHS brand, it would be really great to see more uh, sort of lending of brand and legitimacy and power from health leaders to other less uh, in the spotlight parts of the local public sector, um, like social care, where people are actually enabled through that power base of the health sector to, to sort of be protected to come together and rather than completely be under the cosh constantly, whilst the health sector with, with love gets bailed out um, in a way that others don't. And how could that actually be formed into a much more, uh, a much stronger health-led partnership rather than health and led health and social care integration per se, um, and change the culture and, and phrasing around some of that stuff. And I am, just before you um, head off as well, there's been quite a lot of talk about um, health, uh, uh, sorry, social care being handed over to health, which for me, we've gone round in circles over this over the years. Um, and it always comes down to various different things, including um, the difficulty of, uh, balancing up um, health and social care um, staff uh, terms and conditions. Uh, but do you see that being something that would happen or do you just uh, do you just think that they're way too far apart? I mean, I think I think it's an area that has been am amazingly impenetrable to change in reality. It's on the one hand, it has had a huge amount of structural reform. On the other hand, the ways of working, the lines of communication, the systems, the approach, 
in health, but also in social care has, has, re has remained relatively untouched. And I think until we view it as a single system um, and, a, and a bigger pool, it, it doesn't allow us to unlock sort of different ways of working and thinking around how, how the two might come together and deliver differently. So for me, it's a matter of like, how do we, how do we create the space for, for imagination and, in a, and not in a, in a mega singular system kind of way, but in a almost a service oriented way, like how do we best solve this problem together is not necessarily a mindset that is prevalent in that area. And until we do that, all of the detail around governance, paying, grading, culture, ways of working uh, remains sticky because we're essentially trying to put two slightly broken systems together, use the word integration um, to pretend it, it sticks. Whereas really we need to go back backwards before we can move forward, I think, and, and redesign together rather than at each other, which is what's happening right now. Yeah. Okay, um, right, we've got um, a couple of questions coming up. I'm going to, uh, I, sorry, Edward, I realise your question has been there for a little while, but uh, I'm going to go to the other one because it sort of follows on. Should the NHS widen to include care, care services um, as a national care service? Um, and could they act uh, uh, productively together? I guess that's sort of a similar, um, similar to the, um, the, the question that I was just asking, but um, Charlotte, perhaps you'd like to, to come in on this as well. Thanks. Um, yeah, so my view might be a bit controversial, but I think if we're trying to take health beyond the NHS, then why would we put social care into the NHS? and all of the institutional architecture and structures and, and narrowness of remit that the NHS in its current configuration has. NHS England and NHS NHSI are trying to move to a more place-based approach, but often that still stays within their NHS definitional, you know, boundaries, agencies, regulatory bodies, and all the rest, not thinking about place in its broadest real life sense. There are some exceptions to that, but there's a huge amount, a huge amount of work that has to be done in kind of instilling that mindset amongst the leadership management and wider workforce. So you know, JRF, Health Foundation, King's Fund and others are doing a lot of work on thinking, how do you get the NHS to think about its role in tackling poverty, for example? You don't do it by giving it social care, which is essentially what more and more of local government is left delivering because it takes up so much of their resource. Um, so I think trying to put social care into the NHS as it's currently configured would be like the worst kind of merger. But in principle, thinking about how the systems can work better without trying to chase this elusive integration tail that Dominic was talking about, I think has to be um, the right thing. But I think there's a huge amount of work within the NHS itself to reconceptualize its role in place 
um, that is kind of part one of the necessary steps to it for it to play that whole system role. Thank you, Charlotte. One, one of my favourite things I've ever heard anyone from the health sector say um, about social care and health joining up was, um, no, we don't possibly want that. We don't want politicians getting involved in health and making it political, uh, which I thought was hilarious because it's the most political organisation I think I've ever come across. Um, it's just they take it straight from the centre rather than local. Um, right, I am going to, right, and thank you very much uh, to Edward for being very, very patient with me. Um, but we have an um, interesting point earlier about orchestrating local efforts to avoid unhealthy completion. I agree with the point and would be interested to hear more about how uh, that might work in practice without accidentally ending up with the same centralised approach. Um, I'm not entirely sure who made that point um so but i am aware that we haven't spoken to mark again for a while so hopefully uh mark will be with us um and can come on and tell me if he uh doesn't want to answer that and we can move to someone else no that, that's fine and I, I assume it's unhealthy competition not completion but um i'm going to answer oh, right. if yeah. it is yeah <laughs> If it's not, I apologise. Um, so I think there's a couple of things, you know, more generally, you know, all of the things like, you know, the towns fund, etc. There's always this concept, we have to compete for funds. You know, I'm not sure in a world where you're trying to allocate funding for social infrastructure, competition is necessarily in any way the right way to do that. So, so I am in, in line with the questioner. I think you know, an example for me would be, if we think of my world a little bit, so I do a lot of work in inward investment, and you know, and now every let every local authority will will chase it, uh, inward investment, but clearly DIT has a national function, and and that dominates in terms of resources. So today DIT will kind of allocate sector priorities, will chase companies for investment. I, I think if you were trying to do this differently, what you would do is you you'd look at places. So we know. Food processing is strong in Wigan. We know it's strong in uh, Teesside. We know on the, on the in Yorkshire. So, so we'd look at those places from starting at the place, understand what the opportunities might be, then use that to use DIT to engage with potential investors. So we still have a need for a central coordinating function, but actually the analysis you do, you start at the bottom, not going when you've done your analysis, like today with climate change and um, having everyone bid to get the carbon capture facility or, or whatever it may be. And I think there is a good example of it, which is um, Scottish government. If you look at the Scottish city region deals, they actually are coordinated. So you see different things going into Glasgow versus Edinburgh versus the Highlands. And, and partly that reflects different places. But, you know, government can coordinate without dominating. But, but you do have to start at the place not at the centre to, to kind of make that work and, and you do have to sort of take away some of the competition you know when we turn up to do work with city regions they all want to be tech centres of excellence and life sciences hubs and everyone can't be that right you have to kind of break that to them gently but I think if there was a view and, and that's partly because they know that's where there's funding you know because coming into R&D or whatever it might be if you can start in a different place I think you can have a more rational conversation. So it's not easy. And Dominic made a really good point, which is I think capability is key in this. And, and actually what I think you then get to and why I voted for public service reform is because you do have to 
take people out of Whitehall and put that capability locally, but it's in a kind of way it can be shared. So actually people can access that. And it does. it isn't, I don't think moving the Department of Education to Sheffield or whatever it would be, it's actually spreading different capability all over the country. So you do have kind of local or regional government hubs that are cross departmental. So we do get coordination. It's a bit of a long answer, but I think it's possible, but it, no. it requires quite a shift. Not at all. Um, I, I would, as you've mentioned it, um, and we'll we'll get back to the questions in a second. But uh, being chair, I get to uh, I get to dominate the questions, uh, and a journalist, it's double bubble. Um, just on the uh, on the issue of moving the civil servants out into the regions um, and the, the the civil service hubs, do you do you think that's all going to go um, uh, by the by now that Dominic Cummings uh, and his battle with the civil service is is um is all over or uh, what's your what's your thoughts yeah. on that my sense is it, it might happen for the wrong reasons which is that um it will be about providing a bit of an economic boost and and some um signal that that we're moving out but you know there's a reason i first got involved with the center for towns i heard lisa nandy speak and she talked about the channel Four relocation which was being discussed at the time and said it's not about the economic benefit of moving some jobs to, out of London. It's actually start getting programmes made by people who don't live in London and see the world from a different lens. And for me, if we do move the civil service, that's why I think it has to be cross-departmental. It's about having them making decisions that reflect the environment they're in, not kind of not moving a whole department to a different place because I think it will still be dominated. From the centre, so so I think it might happen, but what I think might happen won't be the right shift. If, uh, if that makes sense. Yeah. Okay. Um, and we've got a question here. Tony Smith asks, "How much genuine commitment to devolution is there in government, and how can we work together to strengthen the case for a bolder, more joined-up approach?" I'm going to uh, I'm going to ask Francesca that uh, to take that one, if at all possible. If you're still there, Francesca. Just summarise the question again, will you? Yes, certainly. Um, how much genuine commitment to devolution is there in the government and um, how can we work together to strengthen the case for bolder and more joined up approach? Well, yes, I mean, I, I, I'm crystal ball gazing. I, you know, I'm, I'm locked down in Leeds. I haven't been wandering around chatting to people or, you know, uh, one of the things about the pandemic is we don't bump into people, do we, going to and from meetings that are all centred around London. Um, so I, I, I don't know what the genuine commitment to the revolution is. I wish I did know. It's a shame that we've got so many ministers coming and going. On the other hand, I, you know, you could think the prime minister was a mayor, understands the real power of local place-based leadership. So is he really going to give that up? I don't, I, you know, I just find it hard to judge at the moment. Um, but I do think, I do think it's the only way. And so it is encumbrant upon us to keep on making the arguments that are being made about actually delivery can only be done on the ground and that there is a central government needs people on the ground to um, do some of the things that um, Dominic was saying 
and Mark about being able to identify opportunities to bring forward ideas and energy and enthusiasm. Uh, and I would just say in response to the point that Ed made, I think that might have come from something I said about cities not competing with towns. Uh, and um, in response to that, yes, I would really endorse what Mark said about we need a, di a dialogue and transparency about how funds are going to flow. And it can't just be about putting up pots of money for people to compete in, in an, a, a way that isn't sensible. And I do think that having a regional civil service presence, not relocating whole departments, but having, you know, much more, a, a much greater presence of civil servants from all the departments in the regions would help. That's certainly something that's been expressed to me by people from the uh, from LEPS. And, and also I'm aware from talking to people who've worked in these regional offices that they, they feel they can't provide the support at the moment that they'd like, they'd like to do to, to, to grow and develop and nurture um, more responsible, more, more political leadership. Sorry, that's incredible waffle. I, uh, if anybody else knows whether we're going to get more devolution, please tell me. Well, I'm actually going to ask Charlotte in a second, but before I do, I'm just going to say a huge thank you to uh, Mark, because I know he's got to uh, to shoot off at three o'clock. So thank you very much for uh, for joining us. Uh, we will uh, carry on uh, with everyone else, but thank you to, uh, to, to you, Mark. Um, Charlotte, did you want to, uh, to, to give us a quick answer on the, um, uh, the devolution question and whether you're, well, I, I don't know if your, um, your Zooms are involved in uh, the people who are deciding this in central government, but what's your feeling on it? Well, just a couple of points on, the, on, the, some, on some of those that have been raised. So Tony asked whether there, I think there's a genuine commitment to devolution and actually I wouldn't worry whether it's genuine and maybe it depends on your definition of the word but I would say if if it's if it's politically um particularly politically powerful enough if, if it's um if there's sufficient political expediency for devolution then I think that's what we should you know galvanize behind and and work with um I, I didn't think that was genuine commitment um, from George, Os George Osborne, but it was politically expedient for him to push the power, the Northern Powerhouse, and um, uh, and catalyse the establishment of Greater Manchester Combined Authorities and others that followed, and that's fine. <laughs> I don't mind if they really believe it or not, but as long as they create the institutional frameworks and allow for that, um, and we need to see the resourcing swiftly follow, um, I think we can work with that. Um, I think Mark mentioned something about um, whole government departments needing to be out of London. Um, I, I assume he meant rather than sort of back office functions that has typically been what we've seen in kind of locating outside of Whitehall to date. I would just give one word of warning and it's an example from Scotland and um, talking to some senior civil service there, they said, well, our economic function is based in Glasgow and our social policy function is based in Edinburgh and never the two shall meet. Now, maybe with COVID and Zooming, there's more you know, interaction that's being forced in any case. So that's not necessarily place dependent. 
Um, but I think the greater challenge with all of this is how do we get a much more integrated system of governance within Whitehall and beyond and at every and between every level of, of governance that we have across the system. That's hugely difficult, but it's what needs to happen if we're going to have effective system change. And then finally, on the, on the devolution point more readily, I think in the reshuffle, we will see the Northern Research Group asserting some muscle. I think if it doesn't, I, I would be flabbergasted really because I think it's what Boris Johnson needs to give his premiership some sense of an anchor. Now we're seeing at the moment a lot that's around climate change, but it absolutely has to come back to red wall and leveling up priorities. Um, otherwise, I think it, it won't really survive um, the next few years and we'll be really limping along. Um, so I think watch this space, you know, Jake Berry, you know, make, make the case and others around you. It's interesting, you've just answered the question that I was about to ask, uh, which was, um, the is the political expediency that now that Brexit is is over is is delivered sort of um, do uh, does Boris Johnson have to have a political answer to the uh, to the the blue wall the red wall um, and is that what leveling up will do for for um, for him give him something to give to the 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 blue wall um, it certainly should in theory but again I think. It depends how much bandwidth the government's actually left with when we see the fallout of Brexit. Okay, um, Dominic, I'm going to come for you uh, to, to you with um, just this last question, um, which again is Tony Smith. How can we use COVID nineteen, uh, sorry, the COVID nineteen experience to persuade government that leveling up must bring together investment, both economic and and social infrastructure. Um, so if um, I can sort of leave you with that one, which is sort of an expansion of some of the themes that we've been talking about as well, but um, more on the uh, on the COVID side, what's what's COVID do, uh, done ever done for us? Yeah, I mean, it, it kind of goes back to one of my points around, like, it depends which way you turn, turn the prism when you're looking at the problem, really. Like, if you if you look at the people most affected through COVID, um, and beyond, as Francesca says, it's women, it's um, people from minority ethnic backgrounds. Um, those aren't necessarily leveling up uh, narrative compliant, I would say. Um, and so, um, you know, it's, it's gonna be an interesting, interesting one from that perspective, because I don't think necessarily one solves the other. Um, and it isn't a singular narrative of deprivation whichever story you tell but equally the sort of more sort of um a less deficit perspective on it as well in a in a brexit world uh, as a, again as i was saying earlier like is totally in contradiction potentially with leveling up you're, you're simultaneously going for spread of wealth and uh heightening of wealth in an internationalized world and uh, you wouldn't. I don't think you'd find many economists that say those two things are necessarily um, like work work effectively together when you when you want to play to your strengths and those strengths are in the places that are causing the current distortion 
that you would then be seeking to disrupt through leveling up. So there's an awful lot of policy contradictions and economic contradictions in all of this. I think I think if we can, you know, it'd be nice if we if we had that, if we were having that kind of honest conversation um, that was saying like essentially f for now, you know, the most sensible thing is to continue to use the southeast of England as a lightning rod for global wealth uh, attraction, uh, but with a very very explicit spread decentralization agenda behind it um something that can actually start to marry the two aspirations particularly in a dig the digital world that we that we have found ourselves in that mean that is entirely possible um but i think it has to be done honestly and openly rather than us you know risk of walking into these contradictions um and uh and fa falling between the gaps on that one a little bit i just personally don't see how yeah the diffusion of wealth and economic activity and the uh, bolstering and booming of it at the same time and necessarily um not contradictory and supportive of one another so it'd be interesting interesting to see i think outside of the economy there's definitely a lot of lessons to learn around community engagement um much stronger um power at local level uh, areas where this government doesn't feel as necessarily challenged or uncomfortable, I think, um, as they do around sort of regional mayors suddenly and um, de devolution. I think they're comfortable with decentralization. I don't think they're comfortable with devolution. Um, and I think they're totally comfortable with community engagement, community organizing, community empowerment, um, which has definitely been a sort of strength the country has demonstrated in the last six months that they can get behind. Okay, thank you very much. Um, I think we, we've got we've got another question coming, so we, I'm just going to do this one quickly, and then we're going to um, um, hopefully redo the poll and see if um, see if the opinions have changed since we last uh, did the poll um, all that time ago at the very beginning of this. Um, so, COVID allowed work from home. Um, which is largely seen as hugely successful. Towns and villages should capitalise, but will need high-speed broadband. What policies can help promote this new normal? Um, I think, let's see, uh, who wants to uh, go for that one? I mean, Charlotte, would you like to, uh, to come in on that? Broadband well, infrastructure is not my area of expertise. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, again, I think it will probably take a, a firm political coalition to keep asserting this. So when I worked in the coalition government, Dali Alexandra was um, Chief Secretary of the Treasury with a seat in Inverness. I mean, it was never off the agenda when we were talking about local regional economic growth. So you need someone really pushing it hard. But I think there's also some other questions more to do with kind of the role and um, structure of our kind of private sector providers, the role of um, the regulator and um, and any kind of carrots that government might, might want to kind of offer to encourage probably private financing of, of some of those issues. But we've seen communities um, stumping up some of that cash and coming up with innovative ways um, to solve some of those problems. So giving them greater and easier means to um, tackle um, problems at, at that place level, again, would be mm. welcome. 
I think I've also seen, and this was pre, uh, pre-COVID, but I've also seen quite a lot of local authorities investing uh, a lot, and Dom, you'll probably know about this, in, in sort of hu- office hubs in, this, in, in small town centres um, uh, and doing that sort of thing. So it'd be interesting to see how much of that sort of joint, um, uh, joint uh, how, how the new normal might include people leaving their their home to work but not necessarily commuting long distances and and changing the way that we work in that way as well. Um, Right, I am going to ask for our poll to come back up uh, because we thought it would be interesting to to have another uh, go at that. So if you can all have another quick look, Um, if you had to choose one, uh, which should the current Chancellor focus on? Uh, if the government is going to be uh, serious about levelling up over the longer term, devolution, uh, federal UK, public service reform and social infrastructure, physical infrastructure, or innovation and the green economy. And I'll just give you a moment to, to, um, to put in your responses to that. There we go. Oh, that's interesting. Now that's that's sort of changed since the last time round. I think public service reform is still quite a strong one, but um, more people are saying devolution uh, this time round. So, so interesting that we've had um, we've had a bit of a a change there. Um, so, but interestingly, even less people are. Um, interested in a in a federal UK, so um, so perhaps Boris Johnson's uh, comments about devolution were correct in that sense. That um, as, as a Scot, I'm very 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 um, torn about um, whether or not we should have uh, uh, Scottish independence. Um, but be interesting to see where we go from here. I I, I think it's uh, a bit of a foregone conclusion unless something changes drastically. Um, Right, okay, I'd like to say a massive, massive thank you to all of our speakers today um, and all those who ask questions, Uh, but also a huge thank you uh, to CPP for inviting us all to come along. I noticed that they have got a bit of a plug in the chat bar for forthcoming uh, events, so uh, I'm sure if any of them are as good as this one, I'm sure you all want to join in with them. But in the meantime, I'd like to thank you all for joining us and thank you particularly to uh, uh, to all the speakers, to uh, Francesca, Dominic, and um, particularly to um, Charlotte and her colleagues at um, CPP. Thank you.